Radio. Conversations with Daniel Noor. Tackling the tough questions on cradio.org.au. Hello, Cradio listeners. My name is Daniel Noor, and when I entered the Catholic Church on September the 21st, 2013, I brought all of my confusion, anxiety, and uncertainty right in with me. As a young journalist searching for the truth, every week I'll be interviewing an expert on a hot topic and trying to get straight answers on the moral, political, or social issues of the day. I invite you to join me and to have your questions about today's tough topics answered as well. This is Conversations with Daniel Noor, and today's conversation is the second in a three-part series on the plight of the refugee. The Sovereign Military Order of Malta is a 1,000-year-old institution that played a role in the Crusades and issues its own passports. Now it is fighting a very different battle, defending its honour as a paragon of Christianity and humanitarian aid. Uh, This is a description of the organisation released by Monocle magazine. The order came into existence about 1,000 years ago, opening a hospital for pilgrims in Jerusalem in 1048. But over the following two centuries, as the Crusades engulfed the Mediterranean, it grew and took on an increasingly military position, defending the faith, uh, and that is the description uh, in the official literature of the order. It's since gone back to its humanitarian roots. There is no longer a military, per se. But instead, ambulances in Austria take medicine to Syrian refugees. And it has devoted itself to maintaining a vast network of aid across the Middle East, Europe, and internationally too. It supports thousands of refugees every year, and it's the Order's migrant aid programs that are the focus of today's podcast. Count Douglas Zawima is a Knight of the Order of Malta, and since 2009 he has been the director of 2009 rather he has been the director of communication and fundraising for the organisation. Count Zawima has also been ambassador of the Order of Malta in Lithuania for many years. Thank you so much for joining us, Count Zawima. Uh, does all, Daniel. Does yes. all that sound accurate to you? Have I uh, have I given a, a correct interpretation of the subject matter? So far, so good. Very well done. You will be the first count to have joined us on this program ever. It's a great honor. If you say so. <laughs> I <Thank> do. <laughs> I really do. And if you could tell us a little bit more about your work uh, in the organization. So where are you based, for example? I'm uh, currently based in Cologne, which is the headquarters of the Order of Malta's activities here in Germany. And in uh, concerning your introduction, I'm in fact um, uh, Director for Communication and Fundraising here in Germany, which is basically the biggest um, sub-organization, if you want, of the Order of Malta with about 22,000 employees and over 50,000 volunteers. That's quite unique even in the world of the Order of Malta. Mm. And the order has a, a rather large kind of palatial building in the heart of Rome. Is that correct? That is correct. The, uh, Rome is, in fact, the seat of the government of the Order of Malta. You mentioned before the importance or its historic um, path through history. And with that came the um, sovereignty of the order. Mm. And uh, today there is, as you mentioned correctly, no more military activity. It's purely humanitarian. But because of its um, role in the in, in the past, we've maintained 
the sovereign status as an independent sovereign um, su subject of international law, and this for the sole reason to um, really to help our humanitarian activities around the world. So today we um, have about 105 diplomatic uh, relationships or relationships with 105 countries around the world, and all that is administered from Rome. Hmm. Uh, may I call you Douglas? Sure. Douglas, your organization has been rather shrouded, if you like, in mystery, and there is a kind of air of mystique around it. In Australia at the moment, we are facing, uh, I suppose, a lot of uh, international criticism about our refugee processing protocols, and in any case, our own government has had a dramatic shift of policy on the matter. We recently announced that we would, if you like, integrate 12,000 refugees into Australian society in something like the, you know, the next five years. Could you tell us a little bit more about the project, or rather the Order's work and its projects internationally, particularly with regard to refugees? Have you any idea, for example, of how many displaced persons it might deal with, say, on an annual basis, and where most of these people are, that kind of a thing? Mm. Um. I think generally speaking, um, we as a human society are facing the biggest or huge humanitarian catastrophe since uh, the Second World War. There's millions of people um, uh, who have fled their countries because of war and uh, just impossible conditions. And as the mission of the Order of Malta is to uh, alleviate human suffering, we are really called upon this um, and, and to act. So yes, we are in fact... Um, uh, acting and helping refugees all along the way, beginning in the countries of origin, being it Syria or Iraq in the current um, eastern part of this uh, crisis, but then also along uh, in countries such as Lebanon and Turkey, where there are huge refugee camps, um, and then all the way through um, uh, through Hungary or uh, Austria until they reach their final destination, which uh, in many cases is Germany or the northern European states. Our main mission really is um, the uh, humanitarian medical aid, that side of um, helping. Mm. And we have um, medical camps, we have field hospitals, and all the way to um, welcoming them here in Germany at the station when they arrived um, from their long journey. We provide shelter, food, and uh, those sort of most basic needs at the moment. Concerning the numbers, it's very, very difficult to say. I can tell you that in Germany alone, we have about 50,000 places that we um, uh, offer to refugees. Now, I say places because those may, these refugees may come for one night and then they move on to another um, location. So it's very hard to say how many people, in fact, we serve. But I would assume with all the activity around the world, we probably are somewhere in the millions if you take um, big refugee camps that we provide um, mm. uh, medical care for. That's an enormous number. Uh, and... Uh, and it's an enormous challenge indeed. And we can only, let me maybe make this point, we can only uh, tackle this um, enormous challenge with volunteers. Most of the work uh, in the Order of Malta is done by volunteers. And, uh, and so at the, at the base, we are a volunteer organization. I was going to say that there, you know, as is the presumption that something like, you know, thousands of refugees would be a challenge to deal with. You said that the way that you can address the enormous need is through a huge network of volunteers. Do you feel that the charitable spirit of the Order of Malta and something to do with its Christian mission, its Christian spirit, if you like, 
gives it a unique kind of capacity for this work that might be maybe more challenging, say, for governments or secular organisations to achieve? Well, I think um, it is definitely the combination of uh, the order's mission, which is to protect the faith or to uh, exemplify the faith and to serve the poor, which are closely connected, that give the order its, um, well, its power almost, you could say, and its um, uh, reason for existing since 900 years, since a thousand years. Mm. Only if these two are, are, are lived out, uh, then they can be as powerfully executed as they are currently. Now, having said that, in Germany uh, at the moment, we have a huge um, readiness uh, for volunteers in the general population. It's, it's really quite a phenomena to see how many people are coming, uh, uh, welcoming uh, refugees, bringing goods, donating money. Uh, there is really a general national um, huge preparedness to help where, in, in view of this um, tragic tragedy that we can see every day. Mm. And to that end, you have a conference coming up, uh, and I think it's a conference on the refugee. It's being held in Germany. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the challenges or discussion topics that are going to be addressed there? Well, in, the, in fact, the, co the conference was held in the middle of September already. Oh, um, my mistake. So, yeah, no problem. Well, obviously, the question was, how do we deal with it? And um, I think our basic... Um, uh, uh, basic uh, response is that you cannot you cannot keep people from moving away from countries where their life is at stake. They will continue to flee, and yes, they will show up at our borders. And we don't believe that there is uh, uh, that that it is a good idea or actually a a way for the international community by just setting up more borders. I think we'll have to tackle. Or I think that was also the the um, outcome of this conference. We'll have to tackle the the big problem at its core, which at the end of the day is really peacekeeping missions and negotiating um, ways uh, in those countries where the where the refugees are originating from. That's mm. that's really the main main challenge. Douglas, in your capacity as a representative of a humanitarian organization, are you seeing a change? in the way that governments and, I suppose, the society of nations have to look at the movement of migrants in the world today? Is there a shift? Well, I think um, without making a political statement, we have seen quite a dramatic shift in the way the German, uh, German chancellor and the German government has responded to the, um, to the crisis. Uh, it, it seems that a lot of the um, former... Uh, ways of how to deal with these problems are uh, put under question simply because of the enormous amount of uh, refugees that are now on on their way to to looking for safety and 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 healthcare and whatever it is they may be looking for. Now, if we look at the German numbers, we've had uh, in 2010 we've had about uh, 20,000 asylum seekers, and we're looking now for the end of this year at around a million asylum seekers. So just um, from that perspective, um, there has to be a, an adjustment to that situation from governments. Mm. Yes, and as well as the, the sheer numbers, I suppose, can you maybe give a word for the way that societies are to approach the integration of new cultures and a whole new group of people? Yes, I think that's uh, apart from the organizational aspects, how to how to deal with these uh, enormous numbers. I think that is really the main question. How can we integrate people into our society? 
and um, and and that again will depend very much on how the society and and that being the individuals of a society are ready to integrate um, people with uh, from a different country with a different culture. I think it is important to stress to refugees um, that yes, they are welcome to come, but this is still and, and every country should should find the right balance for this. But that a country has a certain identity, and mm. that that identity also needs to be respected. And um, but again, the main challenge will be integration, and that starts with a language. It starts in in opening up our let's say um, structures in society, whether it's sports groups, schools, any kind of structures where you know we need to be accommodating, uh, and and therefore help refugees integrate. Yes, we certainly have seen a kind of, uh, if you like, a resistance, if not explicit then I think in the tone of the conversation, certainly there have been very, very uh, heinous you know, crimes, if you like, like that, that poor camera woman who tripped up a group of, uh, I think it was a, a family of Syrian migrants. But in any case, is there a need to address a kind of a social resistance, fear of the outsider, even racism? And has the order done anything maybe to present a kind of policy of social cohesion or of openness uh, in in society, does it do anything like that? Well, I think merely by by um, accommodating volunteers, by training volunteers, by um, having the proper structure, and then um, enabling these volunteers to do their work. I think that is really the best um, pre- preparation for integration. Uh, one of the side aspects, if you want, um, uh, for volunteers that are not integrated into an organization is that they are faced with uh, quite horrid stories of these um, poor refugees, um, where they, you know, whether what, whatever they've experienced on their trip across the Mediterranean. or mm. in, uh, So these refugees also need some kind of um, training and, and almost supervision and how to deal with um, what they're exposed to. So... Um, and the other question, of course, is transparency and communication. In all our um, institutions here in Germany, we look for very close contact to the local community, whether it would be the church or the local government, to explain what is it that we plan next, how are we dealing with them, and we invite everybody to come and, and somehow you know, meet and, and see what really is going on on the ground. I think that is very, very, very important. Mm. Douglas, you mentioned that there was obviously a need for basic aid provision, can you uh, give me a word on that, first of all, and then I'd like to move into more kind of what long-term aid or support infrastructure there exists for migrants. So, for example, um, uh, is there medical support given to new migrants, food packages, that kind of a thing? Well, let's look at a typical uh, a typical path once uh, people have arrived here in Germany. What happens? Well, they they will either be transported from the border or somehow they have gotten by themselves to one of our institutions. Um, first thing there would be a kind of registration process, which is, is an internal registration process in that institution. And then they're immediately given a medical examination uh, to see how their medical condition is, followed by simplest things such as food, um, blankets, and the possibility of a bed to sleep. It's, you know, you must imagine uh, some of these people have been on the road for, for months. Um, one of the big challenges is security for them, not only security because of, you know, criminals, but also security among refugees. Uh, there's a lot of distrust. Some people don't sleep at night because they fear uh, that, you know, something will happen to them or their things. 
So really just this arriving in a, in a safe and warm, uh, well-fed place already is a, is a huge first step. Then there's the official registration process by the government where the asylum uh, process is triggered. And uh, then the next step would be the transfer to another institution. So these first um, arrival institutions, you want they probably stay for a couple of days. And then they're transferred uh, to another institution where they will stay for up to three months, which is the time the processing of the uh, asylum uh, procedure will take. Mm. Once their asylum has been recognized, then they're transferred into another kind of more uh, community-based um, accommodation, whether it, would, it could be an apartment, it could also be a, a, a bigger housing situation, and that's where then the integration process will start. Yes, and you said that that kind of processing period is three months? Well, it really depends. The very first processing phase, if you want, is the registration and arrival process. That's one to two days. Then there's a three-month period in ideally, but now with uh, you know so many people arriving, there's, you, you can't really say it's exactly that. And then, yeah, so it's about three months. And that's the German kind of standard? That's the German standard. That's the German system, yes. Right. Uh, German efficiency, I feel like, is, is what we're getting there. Um, but in any case, I would love to know what about long-term support programs? Because obviously you have a whole you know, inf influx of people. It's all well and good to give them their papers and, and food for a few weeks. But mm -hmm. what about long-term support? Again, I think uh, language is the, is the most important thing, to learn the local language, to be able to communicate, to integrate, that is the basis. And then it's, of course, schooling for kids, training for uh, adults, um, and job markets, giving them jobs um, is the best uh, is the best way how to integrate into society. Now, of course, not everybody will immediately be able to have a job and to find a job, but we've, as the Order of Malta here in Germany, we've had already training programs for migrants in various languages for um, providing uh, care for the elderly, for instance. So mm. there are some areas in, in uh, job-wise where we really need people, and, and, uh, and a lot of the asylum seekers, especially from Syria, are very well educated, have uh, you know, solid education, whether it be, I don't know, architects, doctors, whatever. And um, you know, I'm, it, it will be easy to integrate them once they've learned the language and, and give them a job. Mm. And uh, Douglas, do you see that the long-term prospects, if you like, and certainly you guys have been dealing with uh, the movement of refugees, before the Syrian refugee crisis, is, is it usually successful? Is there usually some kind of, uh, if you like, integration, proper placement in long-term careers, support for families, second generation success and moving on to long, you know, education, tertiary education? Does all of that happen? Have you found that to be the case? It's very difficult to say on a, on a broad basis. Uh, you, you have all kinds of... Um, let's say individual stories with that but as a as a as a general rule i think um, we can say that germany has the capacity and has shown in the past that we can integrate uh, i'm not sure if you're aware but we've had a big um, uh, influx of foreigners in the 60s and 70s where people from italy and turkey came to germany and and we've been able to integrate them to a certain to a certain degree and um, we're hoping to do even better this time around mm. uh, Councillor Weimar, douglas I thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's been a really informative kind of, uh, I suppose, uh, tour, if you like, of European history for the, for the last couple of decades and also of your organization's work. 
Um, so we do thank you. We really appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to Conversations with Daniel Law. Join us next week as we continue in our series on the refugee. You've been listening to an episode of Conversations with Daniel Noor. And for more episodes of Conversations, and for more talks, interviews, and shows, visit cradio.org.au.